you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Are you ready? You better hang on. I got my computer booted up, which means I got lots of notes. A lot of this, though, is history. Context is so important when we read, particularly Revelation. Let me tell you something. A lot of the reason that Christians don't understand Revelation is we don't understand the Old Testament. Over 400 times there's the Old Testament is alluded to throughout just the letter of the Revelation. 400 times. So it stands a reason we should have some understanding of the Old Testament, and I will reference a couple of things from Isaiah as we go through this, as we look at the sixth of seven churches that Jesus is speaking to. Now up to this point, we have heard from five of the churches, and the last one was the church in Sardis, and that was kind of a pathetic deal. He was pretty rough on them. He didn't have a good thing to say about Sardis. Not a good thing at all. Yet Sardis was known as the church that was full of life. It was the church that you were going to send all your friends to when they said, hey, where do I go to church? I'm new to town. Hey, go downtown to Sardis. They got it going on. They got all the programs. Yet Jesus said, but you're dead. Really caused us to, to stop and say, okay, how can a church be so active and so successful by societal standards? Yet Jesus says, spiritually, you're dead. Now, there were a few, there were a remnant that God spared, right? As he does. But overall, the church was a horrible failure. They weren't loving Jesus. They were loving the world, and the world began to look, the, world, the church began to look more and more like the world rather than the world looking more like the church. Well, this isn't the case in, in Philadelphia. Can you imagine if you're, 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 one thing we do know about Philadelphia is this. It was a small church. It was a struggling church, okay? Not a whole lot of people, and that's about all we know about Philadelphia. But can you imagine if somebody in the Philadelphia area came to you and said, hey, uh, where should I go to church today? Hey, go down the street to Sardis. They got it going on. Don't go to, don't go to Philadelphia. I mean, they, they're small. They don't have many programs, you know. They don't have a lot of money. And I'm going to tell you that the people in Philadelphia were very humble, but as they sat there and listened to their elder or their pastor or bishop at the time, read this letter. They've heard from the first five churches and the sixth church at Sardis going, well, we're next. What has Jesus got to say about us? So you can imagine sitting there wondering, oh, man. Because they're very humble people. They were concerned about really making sure they were serving the Lord in the proper state of mind, the proper heart, with a heart for God, like King David. Though he messed up a lot, he had a heart for God. And this is what Jesus said. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 3 of the Revelation, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have, li uh, have but little power, 
and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Which, come down, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh man, good stuff. Good stuff. Nothing bad, nothing negative, no criticism at all from Jesus. I bet they were thinking, whew! Oh. I somehow think they probably didn't think that because that's exactly why Jesus praised them. You see, Jesus knew their situation. He said, I've seen your works. I know your deeds. I know your works. He watches. He sees. And the last thing he wanted to do was discourage these people in Philadelphia, this small congregation. He wanted to lift them up and let them know, listen, you may be indeed the least of the churches in the letters by societal standards, but I love you. Did you hear what I said? You may be least in today's world by today's standards, but the Lord says, I love you. He didn't just love the church in Philadelphia. He loved every single person in it. Amen? He loves you. And he has a word for us today. A little bit of history, because it is important that you understand the context of the letter, okay? So bear with me for a couple of minutes. Philadelphia is a key place in the province of Asia, okay? It actually sits in the border of three different counties, Lydia, Massilia, and Phrygia. I don't want you to expect you to remember those, but it was a significant location. It was a road. There are lots of road junctions and river junction. It was a very prosperous area. In fact, it was called the gateway to the east. You know, if you go down to St. Louis, you see the arch. That's the gateway to the west. And very similarly, they were known as the gateway to the east. This was the place where things were happening. It was a robust area. And it was actually founded as a Greek colony intentionally. It was founded as a Greek colony. It was the furthest colony in Asia. So... Greek, the, the, the people of Greece were trying to infiltrate. It was really easy for Greece to have influence on the coastlines. So if you think about America, East Coast and the West Coast, where's all the new stuff take place, right? The new music, the new gas pumps, the new technology, the new liberal way of thinking. It always starts East and West, and it kind of works its way in. And, and, and imagine that the, Phila- the people of Philadelphia are kind of like the Midwest. Last ones to know and the last ones to budge because we're more conservative, we're more ground in our roots, and we're less likely to change. So Greece said, hey, we really want to uh, influence and the culture in this area, but they had a hard time with it. So they purposely went in and said, uh, we're going to establish this city, Philadelphia, with the purpose of, of Greek culture. 
Matter of fact, they had so many temples and things in this area up on a high hill. You hear that a lot from a lot of the different towns. They actually called it Little Athens, which is the capital of Greece. So there was intentionality in Philadelphia to be as Hellenistic as possible. And Hellenistic just means Greek culture. And all the things that go with that, okay, that are not of Christian descent. So Hellenism, and it was founded with that intention. It literally, quite literally, was a foundation or a gateway to Greek language, Greek culture, and it's now uh, in a high plateau of what we now call Turkey, modern-day Turkey. So, it was seen from the very beginning that this particular town, Philadelphia, was a missionary town, not in the missionary sense that you think. Not in a Christian sense, but to be Hellenized, to become more Greek in their culture, become more secular. That's what they were trying to do. So Philadelphia, the, the church in Philadelphia was dealing with that. Okay. So, physically in this area, there was a lot of volcanic lava, uh, which meant the soil was very fertile, and it was... Uh, enticing to grow vines, specifically grapevines. So there was, this was a wine-rich area. And in fact, uh, their greatest god that was on so many of the pillars and things was Dionysus, the Greek god, the god of, uh, of uh, fertility. Because of this volcanic rock, Philadelphia was subject to a lot of earthquakes. A lot of earthquakes. It was unstable ground, Okay. They had hot springs there because of the lava and the, the rock structures. So they had nice, healthy places to go and sit and bathe and all those things. So it was kind of a, it was a strange combination of things that were worldly. Other, you know, you'd like, well, this is a vacation place, right? Yet it was very um, prone to destruction. Earthquakes were pretty frequent in this area. And they were constantly having to leave the city to avoid the falling buildings, the rocks, the structures from being crushed. So they were having to leave the city or run out. And you see this referenced in Jesus' words. And because they ran out, and oftentimes these earthquakes, when they took place, they always were rebuilding, constantly rebuilding and building and building all the time. So they were really into buildings, understood buildings. So you see in the language that Jesus uses the word key, lock, door, pillars, temples, synagogues, lots of things to have to do with buildings. That's why I tell you these things. Lots of unstable ground, lots of earthquakes. They were always going out, time and time again. Matter of fact, uh, in verse 12, verse, second half of verse 12, he says, never shall he go out of it. It's a small thing. Never shall he go out of it. You're not going to have to leave this temple, the temple of Jesus, of the body. So he, he references these things, and that's why it's important that we, we take a look at these. Here's something else that was uh, important. This particular city, name was changed three times. It seemed like whatever was going on at the time, they would honor a particular emperor, which is, was the case. It was named Philadelphia. So there was this, uh, make sure I check my notes here. There was this man called Atlas, and he was a king. And at, at King Atlas 
loved his brother dearly. And the people recognized his love for him. He would take care of him. He would look over him, provided him a place. And they named the place Philadelphia after his brother, which means brotherly love. Probably know that, right? Philadelphia, brotherly love. Then sometime it it was changed when uh, a Roman emperor, Caesar, in expression of their gratitude, the people of Philadelphia, after an earthquake, he gave them money to rebuild. And they were so grateful for the money they had received that they named the town after him. And they named it Neo-Caesarea, which simply means New Caesar, kind of like New York. You name a town, pick a name like York, and say, oh, this is New York or New Jersey or New Canton or whatever. This was New Caesar. And then later, again, it changed when another emperor came in and they named it after his family's surname and they called it Flavia. So it went from Philadelphia to uh, Neo-Caesarea to Flavia. And we find in Scripture that it keeps referencing name. I'll give you this name. If we look at Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 12, he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. There's the reference to the buildings in the temple. Another, another reference to a building of my God. Never shall he go out in reference to the earthquakes. Okay. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So there's three names there that have been referenced. That's why I give you the history. I find that interesting. Because it's factual. It's just so intriguing to me. It makes it really interesting to, to put these sermons together. I already mentioned to you what we already know about the church, and that's very, very little. It was small. It was a struggling group with Sardis just up the road, the church that had all the life, but yet they were dead spiritually. Can you imagine if you were the ones living there and somebody said to you, what church should I go to? And they point you to the one that's dead. Then Jesus says, actually, this little church over here in Pleasant Hill, I love them. I couldn't help but think of that as I was preparing this. That, you know, it's not about the size. It's about the souls. It's about what's going on. The way the world looks at us is irrelevant. It's how God looks at us. And God looks at the church in Philadelphia and says, you know what, you might be the smallest, you might be the most insignificant. He says, but I love you more than the others. Now, we're not to boast and we're not to pat ourselves on the back or break our arms patting ourselves on the back, but we are to recognize that just because it looks successful doesn't mean that it is in the eyes of God. We still have some work to do. I don't mean that at all, but I think we're much more like Philadelphia than we are Sardis. Praise God. In this letter, it's the longest self-description of Jesus. It's almost like he's saying, you may be the least important church, but of the seven, you are the most important, and I want to talk to you. And he says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the True One. 
Jesus refers to himself as the Holy One, the True One. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see it in Isaiah as he refers to himself as the Holy One, the True One, making it very clear that Jesus is deity, that Jesus is God, because Holy One and True One references both God the Father and Jesus the Son. Jesus is God. He's making it clear to the church of Philadelphia and to all the churches, listen, I'm the Holy One. I'm the True One. And interestingly enough, in the Greek language, which this is a Greek culture, the word true is equivalent to the word real. So any place in Scripture you see where God refers to himself as true, you can replace it with real. I'm the true Son of God. I'm the real Son of God. I am holy. I am the real one. Because you see, where there is truth, there's reality. Okay? I love that. Because I've always, I don't say always, that's kind of my mantra. Truth is reality. And you may not like the truth, but that's the reality. Okay? Let me give you just a small example. There's some people that don't believe in God. They certainly don't believe that Jesus is God. Fine. That doesn't make it any less, what? True. And if it's true, then that's your reality. So God wanted to make sure, Jesus wanted to make sure they understood this is the reality. I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. I'm the real one. And I'm telling you, I love you. And don't be down. Don't be discouraged. Don't look at your numbers. Don't look at your budget. Look at how you're serving me. You see... We're not promised anything until after we are sanctified, we meet up with Jesus, he will make us perfect, give us new names, even, even he's going to have a new name. We don't know what that's going to be in heaven. We don't even understand as we, as we look at that, he says, I'm going to have a new name. It's not going to be Jesus. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what that means, okay? But it says, you're going to have a new name. Messiah's going to have a new name. Jesus is going to have a new name. And he's trying to tell them, whatever name this city is, whatever name is on the front door, it doesn't matter. He's going to have my name. It's going to be my name associated with you. My name. Love that. If we look at uh, beyond that, it says, I am the Holy One, the True One. And he also says, Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. This is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. It's the story of a steward who had the keys to David's palace. He was second to none. He was, he was right underneath King David, and he had the key to let people in. He had the key to let people out. He had access to the entire kingdom, and it got his head got big. He started collecting chariots and started to put a statue together for himself, a royal tomb. He considered himself to be royalty and God literally kicked him out of the kingdom, replaced him with another man and gave this man the keys. In this reference, I can't help but think that Jesus has got that in his mind. He's talking about that situation where he says, listen, I've got the keys. I hold the keys. I open the doors and I shut the doors. I build them and I break them down. He said, I'm the true one. I'm the holy one. 
Always remember that as we lead you as, as your pastor. Don't idolize me, but look up to me. Look to God. I, I'll fail you, okay? As long as I remember that, I'm in a good place, right? It's about God's word. It's not about me. It's about God's love for you and our love for him and how we express that. And we are, have a duty to be thankful and to count our many blessings one by one. How many of you are familiar with that song? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Beautiful song. It's a little high for me in a couple places, but it's, 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 got, it's so simple. It's like a kid's song, but it's so meaningful. Count your blessings. The church in Philadelphia counted their blessings. They knew, but Jesus, at the right time, at the right place, the right moment, to the right people said, don't get down. Man, I love you. you you're awesome. Don't, don't, don't look at the fact that you don't have a coffee shop and a choir. You love me. You haven't forgot your first love. You're not ashamed of my name. You use the word Jesus and you tell people about Jesus. You're not so concerned with appearances as you are with your spiritual vitality and what's going on inside. So this man in Isaiah thought more of himself than he ought. He began to build a royal tomb and God literally kicked him out of the country. He was lying in his own pockets. He was taking advantage of his position. And we hear reference to this. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know your works. I can imagine if you're sitting in that congregation going, oh, here it comes. Oh, boy. You know, they, they weren't perfect. They weren't perfect. And Jesus knows that. We know that. But they were perfect in the sense that they were exactly where they needed to be, where God wanted them to be collectively and individually growing in his kingdom. We don't know the kind of influence those folks had eventually. They weren't very influential people in their own mind. They didn't appear to have many opportunities, but listen to what God says. I know your works and I've set before you, listen, an open door. Golly. Pleasant Hill Baptist Church, what is, what is that open door that God has set in front of us? What is that open door? Because there's an open door. We just got to find it. Let's not try to open our own doors. It's okay to open the windows and let the air in. Right? Let the Spirit work. But what is it that God is leading us to do? Because let me tell you something. Um, he is leading us someplace. Okay? And it's a door that He's opened. And if He's opened it, there's nothing but good on the other side. And he tells the church in Philadelphia, and he's telling us, I have set before you an open door, he says, which no one is able to shut. <laughs> you can try to shut it, but you're not going to do it good. When God has a plan, his plan will be carried out. Even when we mess up, he will make sure his plan gets done. Look at the Old Testament time and time again. Moses and Abraham and Isaiah and Ishmael and uh, David. Just on and on and on and on. They were nothing but a bunch of mess-ups, honestly. 
He couldn't have picked worse people in terms of the way we would pick people. So you think you're a mess up. Hang on. God doesn't. God's going to use you. He's going to use me. Doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how new you are to the faith. There is a door. Will you walk through it? And see, that's the thing. We talked last week. We serve a God who walks and he wants us to walk with him. Sometimes he gets ahead of us. He says, hey, come on. Come on, come on. You ever do that with your dog? Like, come on, come on. If you have a cat, that doesn't work. Cats just do whatever they want, right? But if the dog is loyal, a dog knows his master, the dog will follow. The sheep will follow. The people who know the voice of their Savior will follow. He says, come on, I want you to come with me. I want you to come through this door. Oh, you know, you went through the wrong door. That's okay. I'm going to get you. Jesus will bring you out of that situation. He will resurrect your situation and put you on the right path. See, resurrection is more than just the resurrection of Jesus himself from the dead. But literally what that means for you and I in the flesh is that whatever has happened to you in the past, let it go. You literally must die from it and start anew. If that means you lose everything, that's what it means. Resurrection is you die. You die to self. I learned this from the man Friday night as he gave his testimony. He literally lost everything, but until he was willing to literally die to self, God resurrected him. Do you remember Job and what happened to him? Literally, Job lost everything, but God resurrected him at the end. And I don't mean from the dead, but I mean literally spiritually dead, but physically dead. He restored everything, right? But he didn't get his old family back. He got a bigger family. He got a bigger farm. But he didn't get those new. He didn't get the same cattle back. He didn't get the same horses back. The same chariots back. He got new ones. And in life, sometimes, folks, it's not about taking what's happened in the past and changing it and making it okay and molding it and making it so it fits into our future. It's about literally leaving it and starting anew. Sorry, but that's that's hard. I think that the people in Philadelphia literally left their families in some cases, left their old way of belief. They left friends. They lost friends. They lost relatives. They lost reputation in the community. And they literally started over. They understood what it meant to be and bear their cross daily. Christianity is not an easy task. It really isn't. And again, we're not saved by what we do or worse, but we are saved by who we are. A child of the Most High. And he gives them a warning in verse 9. He says, listen, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan. Remember, we've heard that before. The synagogue of Satan. He's talking about Orthodox Jews. He's also talking about those people who consider themselves Christians but are not following Jesus, the new way. He says that is literally a synagogue of Satan. He's calling them out saying, hey, there will be a day when they will come to your door and they will see your love and the love I have for you. And they're going to go, wow, you're right. We were wrong. Jesus says, that's going to happen. There'll be a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He gives them other promises. He says, I will come and make them bow down before your feet and they will learn that I've loved you. They're going to go, wow, he really does love you. You're such a small church, Philadelphia. 
we thought, you know, you, you got such a small membership, or you don't, you don't have much money. You, you don't even have a nice roof and a nice paved parking lot. But you're right, God. He, he has loved you. He says in verse 10, why? Because you've kept my word. You've had patient endurance. Listen, folks, we live in a fast-paced world. We want things now. God says, be patient. There are some things we're going through right now, all of us, and it's very hard, right? I have them. You have them. God says, just listen. Really, in, in, in the bigger scheme of things, our life is but just a... Just a nothing. <laughs> I mean, it means something, but in, in infinity, it's... It's nothing. It, he says, I know it seems hard. He says, but be patient. And, and you may not get your answer in this lifetime, but you will get your answers and you will get your relief and you will get taken care of and you will see redemption and there will be justice. And it may happen in your lifetime and it may not. But it will happen. Okay, so he says, I love the fact, he says, the Church of Philadelphia, he says, I love the fact that you're patient. You've been through a lot. He says, yet you're patient. You haven't given up. You haven't, de- you haven't denied my name. And said, because you've kept my word, he says, he gives them a specific promise, okay? He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. In this reference here, he wanted them to know, I am coming again. We hear that in some of the other letters. I am coming again. We don't know when. And in this case here, he's telling us, okay, I want to give you some revelation interpretation here. What he's telling you and me, jumping out of Philadelphia, he's telling Pleasant Hill Baptist Church, what he's telling born-again Christians is, I will pull you out of that. I will take you before the bad stuff happens. We call that the rapture. That's a reference to, we don't see the word rapture anywhere in Scripture, but this is where some of it starts. He says, I'm going to take you out of that. I'm I'm not going to put you through that. You've been through enough. So he makes a specific promise to this church. I'm not going to allow that to happen. I'm going to remove you from that. He says in verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And that doesn't mean that anybody can take your crown. You see, back when we, would, when we think about the Olympics, we think of the, 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 the uh, golden uh, medallions that they put or the silver and the bronze we put around our neck. No, this was actually a crown that they would put that was made out of uh, plants and things, thorns and whatever thing. I guess they probably have thorns on it if it's a crown victory. But that's how they, they would recognize their athletes for the, vic- the victories. Just, uh, don't let anybody steal your crown. That doesn't mean literally, physically take it. It means steal what you know to be true. So you may not have, you may just say, I, I've got, as an example, I've got a set of medals that I've got from high school and college for winning various events in track. Okay, let's just say I lost all those medals. They got lost in a fire or whatever. Okay? That doesn't take away from the fact that I won those events. Those medals don't define me. The fact that I did it defines me. Right? And so he says, don't let anybody steal your crown. Don't, don't forget who you are. And that's never going to happen. So... And lastly, before we leave here this morning, I do want to make sure you understand this reference in verse 12. He's referencing again pillars. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar and I will write on him the name of my God. He says, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That new temple of God is us. The temple becomes us and these bodies. 
This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. His promise is forthcoming. It was true and it's true today. But he uses a lot of language that references buildings. There were lots of pillars. There were pillars all over the place. These people were expert at pillars. And a lot of these pillars had names on them for different gods. He says, listen, I'm your pillar. I'm going to make you a pillar. And what's a pillar? Something to hold something up. It's important. Part of the structure. I'll make you a pillar. Remain that pillar in me. Be patient. Be kind. Be loving. Never forsake my name. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he says, never shall he go out of it. In other words, folks, and they understood when he said, never shall you go. They understood that. They're not going to have to scatter to run because of earthquake or things. Upon. He says, you're not going to have to go out of it. Ever. I will write on him. See, instead of the name of some remote God or the God of fertility or the sun God or the God of rain or whatever on a pillar, it might be written upside down and crossways and every which way every pillar has some name on it. He says, my name will be on that pillar. I'm your pillar. And he says, and then, not only my name, the name of my God, he says, the name of my, my, the city of my God and my own new name. So he references to them, they understood it clearly in the context of what happened. They had been through name changes in this community. He says, no, 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 no. And he doesn't just say it once. He says it not just twice, but he says it three times because they had been through three name changes. It's not coincidental, folks. He tells them that because in the context of what these people understood and were living, they clearly understood what Jesus was talking about. And I tell you what, they had one heck of a buffet afterwards. A bunch of Southern Baptist women got together and they whipped up some mashed potatoes and some roast beef and some soup. And boy, I tell you, they had it going on. They were pretty happy. And I imagine right after that, they went back to prayer and fasting and living a life for Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we love you. Lord, may we be a model church. Lord, bless us, rebuke us, fill us with your grace, Lord. Teach us, open the door, Lord. Help us to know what the door is, where the door leads, Lord God. Help us just to walk through it one step at a time, Lord, knowing that you are a gracious God, you're a forgiving God. We thank you that many doors we probably have gone through and it was the wrong one. Lord, I just pray for a movement here at our small church at our church in Philadelphia, that, in fact, Lord, you would show us what that door is that we don't see yet, that you have opened, but we're not aware of, Lord. May you just impress it upon our spirits, Lord God, what that door is, and, and lead us, each of us individually and collectively, Lord. We love you, Lord. I pray for everybody here this morning. There's not one here that knows you, Lord. May you call them home today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. The congregation says...